I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Ephesians. We've made our way up into the sixth chapter, to the beginning of the sixth chapter. But we're going to have to back up a little bit into chapter 5 to, to make the connection between uh, uh, what has been said before and what Paul is uh, now beginning to say in chapter 6. In chapter 5, in verse, uh, um, well, really in verse 18, Paul starts and, and uh, uh, is talking about, we've, we've discussed this before, I guess I need to start here. We discussed this before, the, the book of Ephesians is a, an overall big picture book. In other words, he's not writing to the church at Ephesus trying to fix a problem. Uh, this is a letter that was uh, um, apparently intended to be distributed among a number of churches. The, um, uh, where the, uh, the beginning of chapter 1 says to the church at Ephesus, um, the place where of Ephesus is written in, it's handwritten in the original documents that we have record of, there was a blank there, which is an indication that uh, Paul intended this to go from church to church to church, be passed around and be a personal letter to each and every one of the churches because it's, a, it's, a, um, uh, it's instruction, it's doctrine, it's teaching about who the church should be in the world. And so he starts off in the first three chapters talking about who we are in Christ and the the position that we have because of Jesus' sacrifice and his resurrection power. But then the last three chapters are how to live in this world. So he's made his way in chapter 5 and verse 18. He says, And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, even though this letter is intended to be passed around from church to church, or copied and, and distributed to different churches, whichever the case may be. We know something about the church at Ephesus, how they started off with uh, Paul ministering to them, actually found certain disciples uh, at a certain place, and he thought they were saved. And he asked if they received the Holy Ghost, and they said, we've never heard of the Holy Ghost. So then he has to dig a little further, and he says, well, then under, under what are you baptized? They're living their lives in such a way that they seem to be separated unto God, so he assumed that they're saved. He assumed that Paul assumes that they've heard about Jesus and made him the Lord, made him the Lord of their lives. And so they said that they've never heard of the Holy Ghost, so he knows that they haven't heard of Jesus. So he says, under what then are you baptized? And they said, well, under John's baptism. John preached of Jesus to come, but they've never heard that Jesus came, lived on the earth, and was uh, crucified and raised from the dead. So he preaches Jesus to them, tells them about Jesus. And then he prays for them, and the Holy Ghost descends on them, and they speak with tongues and they prophesy. Therefore, Paul cannot be talking about, in verse 18, chapter 5, verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. He cannot mean receive the Holy Ghost or the infilling of the Holy Ghost or the baptism of the Holy Ghost or whatever terminology you want to put on it. That can't be what he's talking about because they already have. Well, then what is he talking about? He's talking about living a life. Remember, these are practical application chapters. He's talking about living a life that's affected and influenced by the Holy Ghost who's baptized you which means you don't have to. Which means, in other words, you can be filled with the Spirit, you can speak with other tongues, and not live this Spirit-filled life that he's referring to. And a lot of charismatics do that. A lot of charismatics think the baptism of the Holy Ghost is the end of all things. They think that since they speak in tongues, they'll spend all their time, you know, of churches like this. There was a church like this in the area where I grew up, and boy, everybody stayed away from them like they were vampires. I mean, it was, it was a nasty thing to, to be found out that you went there. 
Well, a lot of times people think that being filled with the Holy Ghost and with the evidence of speaking in other tongues is the end of everything. Folks, it's the beginning of everything. It's not the end of everything. It's the beginning of everything so that the Holy Ghost can influence every aspect of your life. And this is what Paul's talking about where he says, be filled with the Holy be filled with the Spirit. It's a play on words that literally says in the original translation, it would, uh, a literal translation would read, be being filled with the Spirit. In other words, stay full. Live your life in such a way that you stay full. Now, how do you do that? He mentions three things, three characteristics. Verse 19, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Notice the first thing that he says that a spirit-filled life does, it creates a change in your speech. Not just speaking in tongues, but your life becomes a life of praise. Your first inclination when you're influenced and directed by the Holy Ghost is that the words that come out of your mouth are not words of complaint, not words of griping, not looking for all the problems that you have and, oh, woe is me, what are we going to do? But your first inclination in living a spirit-filled life is speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, praising God in the midst of whatever trouble you might find yourself in. The second thing he mentions is in verse 20. He says, giving thanks. Thanksgiving and praise must be two different things. Giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what's he referring to? He said a spirit-filled life focuses on two aspects of magnifying God in your life. Magnifying God in your life. Now, folks, you know as well as I do that the percentage of the modern-day church that lives magnifying God in their life, well, I'd hate to even think what the number is. might be minuscule. But that's what a spirit-filled life does. A spirit-filled life does. It sings and thanks God in every aspect. Now, stop and think of this for a minute. If this is what Paul is directing us by the Holy Ghost... And instructing us that here's what a spirit-filled life is supposed to be. And let's assume that, uh, take for granted, that God wants us to be seen by the world as living a spirit-filled life. Then what should the church look like? Well, the exact opposite of what it looks like now. It should look like a people who magnify God and not the problems around them who magnify God instead of complaining about what everybody else in the world is complaining about. In other words, somebody that has always got on their lips in some form or another that God is the answer. What do you think that would do to the world if the church started living like that? Would it make a distinction between us and the unsaved? That's one thing for sure. And it would draw attention to God. The third characteristic he mentions is in verse 21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of the Lord. Now, submission is an attitude. Submission is not action. It's not obedience. It's an attitude, an attitude of submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of the Lord. Now, this is going to become more important in chapter 6. And you've got to remember that Paul didn't write in chapters and verse. The translators divided this into chapters and verse for easy reference and and uh, for our sakes, as far as study is concerned. But he's talking about different areas that living a spirit-filled life will impact. 
will influence in your life. The first thing he says is, it'll make us better husbands and wives. Why? Because we won't be complaining about our husbands and wives so much. We'll be magnifying God in everything that we do. That'd change a marriage. We get your attention off of each other and on to God. And he says this is a matter of your Christian obligation to the Lord. In other words, he's saying living a spirit-filled life should change the way you live. And he starts in the home, starts in the marriage first. And then in chapter 6, he continues the same thought. And here's the next area he talks about a spirit-filled life having an influence. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and thy mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee and that thou mayest live long on the earth. Now, what is he talking about? He's talking with, when it comes to parents and children relationship, two different things. Now, realize that he knows that the children are not reading the letter. He's not writing this. Children, young children, obey your parents. That's not what he's writing. He's writing to the church an overall view of the church. Here's what Christian children should look like. That was too much for somebody to handle. But that's what he's saying. He's saying this is what Christian children should look like. They should be obedient to their parents. Now, but Pastor Mike, isn't that part of the law? Yeah, it is part of the law. It's part of the law of Moses, and he makes mention of it as having the first commandment of all the laws given of Moses, 430 laws. This is the first one that's made mention of having a specific promise that results from obedience. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, notice verse 2. He says, honor your father and mother. Obedience and honoring are two different things. Honoring is the action, or I'm sorry, the attitude of submission. Now, Paul does not contemplate a parent telling someone, telling their children to do some ungodly thing. He does not contemplate that because he's going to talk to the parents next. So he's saying that children should obey their parents. Why should children obey their parents? Well, children should obey their parents because they don't have knowledge of right and wrong for themselves. We know clearly then that he's talking about young children. He's not writing to young children. He's writing to parents so that they'll know how to raise their children. Children should be subject to obedience to their parents. But we should teach them in the right way, and he'll cover that in the next few verses. We as parents should teach our children in the right way so that they have an honoring attitude long past the point where they're under our obligation to obey. Honor your father and mother. He's talking about attitude. Now, when you start growing up and you get out on your own, you have your own family, it would be ridiculous, for example, for me to obey my mom where it comes to family matters concerning my family. She didn't know what's going on with my family. She might think she knows best, but it's... It's not my obligation to obey everything that she says anymore because I'm an adult and I'm responsible for myself. But I never outlive the obligation to honor her. Ever. And that's where the promise is. It's the first commandment with promise. And what is that promise? That it may be well with you. This word well is the word translated prosper in Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt uh, meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, 
and then thou shalt have good success. In other words, it's saying, here's the key, parents. Here's the key to setting a financial foundation for your children, a success, a a foundation of success for your children. Teach them correctly. Well, how do we teach them? Well, look at verse 4. And you fathers, the word fathers is the word parents. It's not the word fathers. You parents and you parents. Provoke not your children to wrath. Philip's translation says don't overcorrect your children. Don't overcorrect your children. How many of you as parents find out that you have to pick your battles with kids? You can't fix everything. Now, this is the thing that I ran into with my dad, and I, I didn't know it at the time. Uh, I didn't, my mom and dad got divorced when I was in um, high school, which was an unheard of thing. I mean, I was in a school of 2,000 kids, and me and one other kid had divorced parents. It's almost a rarity now when kids in high school don't have divorced parents. It's almost completely turned around. But, I mean, it was a, it was a big, big deal in our day. Well, as a result, I didn't have too much of a relationship with my dad. He wasn't around much when I was growing up anyway. Um, anything that I have that can be credited to parents goes to my mom. And he had to admit that before he died. It was the hardest thing in the world for him to, to admit. But he, he told my mom that one day, not too long before he died. He said, you did a good job raising these kids. Of course, he's talking about me, but he had to throw my brother in there. <laughs> But my dad was always trying to fix everything. Now, the reason he was trying to fix everything with me is because he was embarrassed by the stuff that I would do. So he wasn't trying to correct me for my sake. He wasn't trying to correct me for for my benefit. He was trying to correct me so he'd look good. And it just about destroyed any kind of relationship that we would have had. This is what he's talking about. Parents, don't overcorrect your children. In other words, don't try to fix something without teaching them why. Now, you can't do that when they're, you know, real young. But you should start making that a practice as they begin to get older and can understand for themselves. Parents, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. The word nurture means loving example of truth. Loving example of truth. Loving example of truth. In other words, live the word in front of your kids. If you take your kids to church... And tell them that you want them to learn what we're teaching them here. But you don't live it for yourself. Forget your kids following the church's example. They'll follow yours. That's what he's saying. Here's how to prevent overcorrecting your children. Bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. The example. The loving example of living the word in front of them. Well, you can see why he started with husbands and wives first then. Because he's trying to establish that example. As the result of the Holy Spirit influence in and upon your life. Bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Now he's going to change subjects. Talking about servants and masters. I'm going to read down through verse 9 at all uh, at one shot. And then we'll make some comments about them. Servants be obedient to them that are your masters. Now the word servants is the word slave. 
Now, a lot of people are going to take this and say, well, this is talking about employers and employees and so forth, and there are some principles that you can apply there, but this is not talking about employers and employees. It's talking about slaves and slave owners. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh. Notice he identifies that if a slave is owned as property, the person that owns them, their master, is only their master according to the flesh, not their spirit, the real them. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and singleness of your heart as under Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. With good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And you masters, slave owners, do the same things unto them, forbearing threatening. Knowing that your master also is in heaven, you have one too. Your master also is in heaven, neither is there respective persons with him. Now, as I said, there are some principles here that you can apply to, to employers and employees. Certainly, we all have a tendency to work harder when we think the boss is looking. And this is one thing that he's talking about. But imagine what it would be for a slave. What incentive other than physical punishment would a slave have for doing a good job for his owner? That's hard for us to relate. We've heard stories and we've got some slavery in in our history and a lot of people are trying to fix that. And a lot of people will take these verses of Scripture and say, well, see, the Bible even supports slavery. Why should we pay attention to a book that's so outdated as to do that? Well, there's a couple of points that we need to consider with that. Number one, most of the people I've found trying to do that are looking for justification for disobeying God's word anyway. I've never heard anybody that was honest use that as a legitimate example for disobeying God's word. But let's talk about the issue of slavery for a minute. Why does the Bible not refer to freeing of slaves? Well, We've got some other letters. This is not a standalone letter. We've got some other letters, specifically one letter that Paul wrote while he was in prison, in his last imprisonment, not this one, where he kind of where he had a hired house and was able to come and go for a two-year period of time. But his last imprisonment, when he was on death row just before he was executed, he wrote to Philemon. And Philemon was a slave owner. And Paul writes to Philemon and says, on, uh, uh, Onesimus, who is your runaway slave got saved while he was away from you. He got saved under my ministry, Paul says. And he said, he's been very helpful to me, and I even wanted to keep him, but that wouldn't be right because according to the laws of the land, he still belongs to you. And that would do you a disservice and cost you, and I don't want to be responsible for costing you. But then Paul adds, but we won't talk about what you owe me. But then Paul says, and it shows his attitude as impressed and influenced by the Holy Ghost, inspired by the Holy Ghost. He said, I would just, I would much prefer to keep him because he's been a help to me in my imprisonment. Now, the prison, the last prison Paul was in was a terrible and disgusting place. And you can't think of prison cells like we have today and relate to the Bible example. Because where Paul was, like I said, there's no sentence of, you know, a number of years or months or whatever, and then they let you go. When you get into a place that they put Paul, which was literally a hole in the ground, 
attached to the sewer system of the city. When you get put there, it's just a matter of when do they decide to execute you? And so as a result, they're not trying to keep these people alive. They're not feeding them. They're not clothing them. You're not, they're not being protected from the elements. This is just an open hole in the ground that's constructed in such a way that they can't get out. So they're open to the elements. And there's historical records that in this very prison that Paul was kept in, this hole in the ground that Paul was kept in, that during the rainy season, it would back up with sewage. And Paul writes to Timothy, the second letter, last letter he writes to Timothy, he talks about how cold he is. He says, bring the coat. Bring me a coat. Well, why didn't the prison provide him a coat? Because they're not trying to keep him alive. If he dies on his own, then that's just one less execution that they have to perform. Well, Paul, in writing to Philemon, talks about Onesiphorus. I'm sorry, uh, Onesimus. There's two of them, two guys that are spoken of that I get confused. Onesiphorus and Onesimus. Say that five times real fast. (laughs) But Onesimus got saved. I don't know how that would happen, but got saved as he was a runaway slave. Maybe it was before Paul was put in prison. And he had such respect for Paul that he stuck around. But when Paul finds out what the case is, finds out he's a, a slave, a runaway slave from somebody that Paul knows personally, then Paul sends him back to his master. Now, put yourself in, in the position of both men. If you were the runaway slave that was being sent back to slavery, how would you like that? I can't think of one reason why I'd put up with that if it was me, and that is because I'd been convinced by Paul that it was the will of God. Now, how in the world could slavery ever be the will of God? Because God's not a lawbreaker. God's not a lawbreaker. And that's why Paul gives instruction to the masters, Christian masters. Now, on the other end, Philemon, knowing that Onesimus is on the way back, or really the letter is delivered to him when he returns, knowing that he's come back, he reads this letter. I'm sure his first inclination is, I've got to punish this guy for running away and teach the other slaves an example and, and make an example of him and so forth. But Paul talks about how that Paul would prefer to have kept him because he was providing aid and comfort to him while he was in prison in this hole in the ground. But then Paul says something that's very instructive. He said, but I can't do it in a manner that takes him from you. It has to be something that you do willingly. So what is Paul doing? Paul is is revealing the attitude that he has living a spirit-filled life, controlled and directed by the Holy Ghost and certainly inspired by the Holy Ghost to write to Philemon. He's saying, if I know the will of God, God would have you release this guy. But it has to be your choice, not mine. Now, why does the Bible not come out and speak against slavery? Please understand, folks, that slavery cannot exist where the gospel has taken root. It just can't. Well, then why didn't the Bible condemn slavery? Because Christianity was, cons- was considered and rumored among all throughout the Roman Empire, which was pretty much from one end of the world to the other at that point in time. It was supposed and suspicioned that the whole purpose of Christianity 
was to subvert the Roman society. And if Paul had said by the Holy Ghost, all you slave owners need to free your slaves, then that would have played right into the hands of what many who are the enemies of Christianity were saying anyway about try, about it, Christianity, trying to destroy the, the fabric of society. So what does God do? God always leaves it up to man to choose to do right. Does the Bible support slavery? No. It supports obeying the laws of the land as long as you can. And what happens when you can't? Well, we've got examples of that in the book of Acts where the apostles were commanded not to preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. What'd they do? They said, well, thou... They said to the people that were commanding them not to preach in Jesus' name, they said, whether it's right in your sight for us to obey you or God, you're going to have to decide. We we're we're can only do what God told us to do. That's what should be called and is called civil disobedience. In what regard? When it becomes impossible to keep the laws of God and the laws of men. So Paul is not talking to slave owners about anything other than following what God puts in your heart. Well, what would God put in your heart if you're living a spirit-filled life? Providing freedom for your slaves. Now, does that mean turning everybody loose? That might or might not be the best case. But what is he saying? He's saying to the slave owners, the masters, he's saying just as you have an obligation to them because they're legally a part of your household, you have a greater Christian obligation to make them part of your family. So he's telling them to care for them, just like their master, Jesus, in heaven cares for them. Now here's something that we don't consider, but we have historical records and historical evidence of this being the case. I don't know how often or how common it was, but you might have a slave that was used by the Holy Ghost as a leader in a church whose master, slave owner, might be part of that church. So what should be done there? Well, the slave owner, even though he owns the the slave as his property, submits, living a spirit-filled life, submitting yourselves one to another, submits to the gift of God that's on the slave. So at church, the slave is the master of the congregation or whatever the case might be that God's using. But at home, in everyday life, he goes back to submitting to his master with singleness of heart as unto the Lord. Things were pretty confusing back then sometimes. So what's the rule? What's the principle? Let the love of God dominate whatever you do. Let the love of God dominate you as you're working for somebody, as you're working for your, your master. That certainly applies on the job today. And if you're the employer or the boss, let the love of God dominate how you treat your employees. Wouldn't it make sense that following the direction of the Holy Ghost would cause you to, to walk in love? Well, that's where Paul started in chapter 4. Walk in love in everything. Now it brings us to chapter 6, verse 10, where Paul's been saving what might be called the best for last. Finally, my brethren. Finally, my brethren. Finally, my brethren. Now let me ask you a question. Seeing the construction of these letters, 
chapters 1, 2, and 3 talking about God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Our position in Christ because of the sacrifice that he's made and the work of God through the Holy Ghost in us today. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 talking about how we live out our Christian life before the world. Exercising authority, utilizing the resurrection power of the Lord, and so forth. Do you think Paul had some kind of outline in his mind or in his thinking at least in what he wanted or what he knew that the Holy Ghost wanted him to write to the churches? Well, he would have had to. This couldn't have been accidental. So when Paul says in chapter 6, verse 10, finally, my brethren, how can it mean anything other than this is the final point that I've been saving till last? In some ways, we could say this is the most important point of the Bible or this letter. He says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Now, how in the world could that be more important than living a spirit-filled life? How is it possible? And why is Paul just, and if that's not the case, if this isn't the most important point that he's saved till last, then how is it that Paul has placed it in the, in the position that it is? It would seem to me like finishing up with relationship issues, husbands, wives, children, parents, slaves and slave owners, slaves and masters, that would have been a good place for him to conclude with, it's so important for us all to walk in love and fulfill the plan of God for our lives. But he doesn't. He starts talking about one final point, and that is spiritual strength before the world. Remember, this is, the whole letter is about what the church is supposed to look like in the world. How is the church supposed to look to the world? Strong. Spirit-filled. But strong. Now, everything that he's going to talk about relative to being strong in the Lord... Well, maybe I ought to read another couple of verses. I'm only going to go down through verse 12 this morning. Save the rest of it for next Sunday. Finally, my brethren, verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Another translation says his mighty power. What power is it talking about? It's talking about the power that he prayed that we would understand that was identified as the resurrection power of Jesus. Be strong in the Lord and in his resurrection power. Well, then that must be possible. Now, notice it doesn't say one word about you other than making a determination to accept the resurrection power or the strength of God in your life. It doesn't say be strong in yourself. It says be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now, folks, if you, if you accept what the Bible is saying and understand the possibility thereof, it's impossible for you to be weak. Yet weakness seems to be the mantra of the modern day church. Well, we just feel so weak. We just feel so unworthy. We just feel so helpless. How is that possible if you're strong in the Lord's resurrection power? He's talking about a determination. And everything that he refers to is a, a, that makes up the armor of God that he commands us to put on in the next verse. Everything that makes up that armor of God has to do with 
understanding or knowledge of the word. So when he says, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might, in the resurrection power of the Lord, he's literally identifying, not only through this letter, but through the, what he wrote to the Corinthians. Matter of fact, why don't you turn with me to verse, to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Give you a little head start to find that. Everything that he says here about strength, about the church looking strong and being strong with or in front of the world has to do with knowledge of God's word. It's the only thing that makes you strong. That's why we place such an emphasis on the teaching of the word here. Because it's the only way you'll ever be strong. Notice 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul says, and this letter is already written before the Ephesian letter ever comes out. Paul says in verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Now, a lot of people read that far and they say, Oh, yeah, that's what we want to do. We want to pull down the devil's strongholds. And it always has something to do with prayer. Usually some kind of extreme or goofy type of prayer. And it's been for generations the practice of certain ministers to come out with some newfangled way that here's how you pull down the devil's strongholds back in the 80s people started trying to go up into the high places of the cities well that's what jesus did of course jesus was going to a new town in nazareth and climbed the highest hill so he could pull down the devil's strongholds There were even groups of people that were chartering airplanes trying to get up higher than whatever evil spirits they thought worked on the earth. Well, that's just stupid. But that's never stopped the church before. Stupidity has been a hallmark of many churches. But notice what he says. He says, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. That's not where our fight is. Well, a high place or climbing a mountain or climbing up into the tallest building in town or renting an airplane or something like that, that's all part of the flesh, isn't it? Well, why would we use that for a weapon? Paul said that's not our weapon. He said, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or fleshly, but mighty through God, mighty through God, mighty through God, To the pulling down of strongholds. Now, where are those strongholds? Notice verse 5. Casting down imaginations. Folks, the greatest stronghold the devil's ever going to have in your life is going to be between your ears. The devil's stronghold is wrong thinking. That's why Paul talks about being strong in the Lord and the power of his might and refers to knowledge of the word. What the knowledge of the word will do to equip you and protect you. Because Jesus has already done everything that needs to be done for you to be strong and for you to be victorious. There's nothing left to do on your part except to understand and accept what he has done and put it in practice in your life. If that were not true, then the work of Jesus was not complete. 
if it still takes something on your part or my part, if some work on, on somebody's part or some act of God down the road in the future for things to be complete, then what in the world was Jesus doing? Why did he shed his blood? Why did he die such a horrible death? Why did he go into the, to the belly of the earth and spoil principalities and powers if that was not a complete work? And furthermore, what's he sitting down for at the right hand of God if the work's not finished? Well, he's sitting down because the work is finished. So what is there left for us to do? Understand, gain knowledge and understanding of what's been done. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Folks, spiritual strength is a matter of thinking right according to the word. That's why Paul wrote to the, to the Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. Be not conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So he's talking about an operation of the mind. So in other words he's saying don't think like the world thinks. But be transformed. Notice where the transformation comes. The transformation comes by you changing your thoughts. To renew your mind to what the word says. Then you shall prove or experience what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God, it goes on to say. And that was Romans 12 too. In other words, he's saying the only way you're going to experience the will of God in your life and the only way you're going to experience what Jesus has already purchased and accomplished for you in your life, in other words, beyond the page of the book, but make it real in your life, is to change your thinking. first thing God expects of you and calls for you to do after you get saved renew your mind change your thinking back to Ephesians chapter 6 finally my brethren be strong in the Lord and the power of his might put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil now the word wiles means treachery or tricking I'm sorry it means trickery or treachery but the root of the word means traveling over. That used to bug me. How do you get treachery or trickery from a root word that means traveling over? But it's really simple. Paul is saying there's one and only one road or way that the devil operates. These wiles, these schemes are all rooted in one thing. Now think about what Paul knows about the devil's schemes or strategies. Well, he knows from, uh, from the letter that he wrote to the Corinthians, he knows that the devil tries to tear up family relationships. How? Through wrong thinking. He knows that the devil tries to tear up churches through wrong doctrine. How? That wrong doctrine brings about wrong thinking on the part of the believers. Everything that Paul ran into, persecution against him... What's the cause? Wrong thinking on the part of the Jews. The Roman government taking a position against them. Why? Wrong thinking on the part of Christianity and his, plan, his role in it. Every work that Paul addresses, every problem that exists in the church that Paul writes to correct comes down to one thing and that is wrong or deceptive thinking. 
Paul's lived this. He's seen it in every church, every work that he's ever started. He sees people turn away from him. He writes to Timothy some two or three years later than this letter was written and says all those in Asia, including the church at Ephesus, all those in Asia have turned away from me. Why? Because they didn't allow themselves or determine in themselves that they were going to be strong in the Lord. They allowed the persecution to turn them away into wrong thinking. Every work the devil has starts the same place. Everybody that's ever fallen into adultery started with wrong thinking. Every person that's ever fallen into any and every sin starts the same way, and that's wrong thinking. If you can become strong in your thinking, your way of thinking according to God's word, you can avoid the things that trip up the unsaved. A strong Christian is a strong-minded Christian. That's why the Bible talks so much about wisdom and understanding. Why? Because wisdom and understanding will keep you from, from taking hold of deceptive thoughts. You won't accept them. So he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, the strategies, the treachery, the treachery of the devil, the road that the devil travels. Now, folks, if you understand this, if you understand there's one and only one way that the devil works. Now, Paul uses a military example. And he does that a lot. He, he expands it in this last letter that he writes to the church concerning the armor of God more so than any other letter that he wrote. But in an earlier letter, he wrote to the Thessalonians, one of the first letters that were written to the churches, he wrote to the Thessalonians about putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now he expands it possibly because he's got two years in Rome where his daily companion is a Roman soldier. He's looking at this armor. It's a friendly house arrest type thing. So the guy's not worried about getting too close to Paul or anything like that. I'm sure Paul was witnessing to him every day. I'm sure Paul was doing what he could to show kindness to the guy, striking up conversation. He might have even been asking him, what do you use this for? How does this work? Who knows? But he expands a military concept where the church is concerned more so than any other letter that he wrote. Now, let me ask you from a military standpoint, if you know your enemy has only one way to come out and attack you, what are you going to do? You're going to fortify that one way, that one area. You're not worried about fortifying other areas because there's only one way that he operates and the other areas don't count. It would be a waste of resources. So what is he saying? He's saying, Get ready in this area by putting on the whole armor of God. He's going to tell you what to understand about God's work through the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus and the impact that it should have in your thinking. He's going to tell you, here's what a transformed mind looks like so that you're able to stand against all the strategies of the devil. Not just one or two. Not guard yourself up from one of ten. But you'll be able to stand against all of the devil's strategies. And it all has to do with the mind. A strong church is a strong-minded church. A strong believer is a strong-minded believer. Now that's beyond some people's comprehension or willing to accept. 
And the Bible even talks about comforting the feeble-minded. I think some people are just feeble-minded, whether of necessity or whether of choice. I know most of the church is feeble-minded by choice, through an ignorant choice, but nevertheless a choice. So put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against all the wiles of the devil. Now, folks, you need to understand something. If the instruction that Paul is giving us does not equip us to overcome and, and, and endure, outlast any and every attack of the devil, then God lied to us. That's how absolute this is. For, because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, and against spiritual wickedness in high or heavenly places. Now, remember that I told you earlier in this series that this is a companion letter to the, to the letter that he wrote to Colossi, the Colossians. Paul writes to the Colossians to address a problem. And part of the problem there, we don't know if it's the whole thing, but part of the problem that he addresses is that there's wrong doctrine that's taken hold in the church at Colossae. Uh, the city of Colossae is about 40 miles away from Ephesus there's a, there's a circle of seven churches a trade route of seven churches in what we know of today as Turkey beside one of those, church, uh, one of those cities where there was a church and those are the seven churches that Jesus addresses uh, his comments to in the book of Revelation the first few chapters of the book of Revelation it was along the trade route. And Jesus takes them one by one. If you were traveling down the place and went around the circle to all seven cities, he takes them each in order. Next to one of the, or nearby, one of these uh, cities that are referred to is the town of Colossae. It was a small church. It was a small place. But in this small town of Colossae and in the church, there was doctrine that had taken hold where somebody had come in there teaching how that there were evil spirits in operation in the world and not only with believing Jesus, they needed to pay homage, usually sacrifice, but pay attention to and, and some sort of worship to these evil spirits that have control in the earth and are controlling the sun and the moon and some of the elements of the world and, and so forth. And Paul goes to, to great lengths to say, don't allow yourself to be pulled into this voluntary worship of evil spirits. Here, Paul talks about the church's authority over the devil. In chapters 1, 2, and 3. And in chapter 6, he talks about the exercise of that authority. He doesn't talk about the, the wrong doctrine that they may or may not be aware of. Don't know if it's spread to Ephesus or not. But he doesn't refer to it. He just says that if you'll use the armor, the weapons, spiritual weapons that God has given you, you won't have to worry about any of the evil spirits that are in operation in the world. Now, folks, this is instructive for us because anytime you hear teaching about the devil, you need to ask yourself, why is the church or certain preachers, certain churches, whoever it might be, why is the church teaching about the devil when Paul didn't? And why didn't he? I mean, here it tells us that Paul knows a lot about the evil spirits in operation. He tells us about principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in high and heavenly places. How does he know those things are there? He's talking about ranks. He's talking about a progressive order of rank in the devil's kingdom. How does he know?
He never told us anything else about it. He may have referred briefly to it, but this is the most comprehensive list that we have of how the devil operates. And the devil's operating in principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, and spiritual wickedness in high or heavenly places, all to enforce or to attack in one area. And that's your mind. To bring wrong thoughts. To bring wrong thoughts. So why should we bother with the devil's levels of operation? It all comes down to the same thing. In other words, whether you know about spiritual wickedness in high or heavenly places or not, the answer is the same. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So why waste mental energy trying to understand the devil? Jesus didn't. Paul didn't. And if they're not our examples, who would be? Let me read these verses again. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, his resurrection power. Please understand the operation of his resurrection power in your life comes from you understanding through your knowledge and acceptance of the word what he's going to tell you about the armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. People aren't your problem ever. Now the devil may be operating through people, but they're still not your problem. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world and against spiritual wickedness in higher heavenly places. Let me close by reading verse 13. Wherefore, for this cause, wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. William's translation says when evil attacks you. And having done all to stand, stand. What's the devil's work against you in your life? Trying to move you off of the truth of God's word. That's it. How does he do that? Through wrong and deceptive thoughts. He may stir up or bring uh, circumstances against you. But the circumstances are all designed to do one thing, and that is to make you think either the word's not true or God's abandoned you. Neither of those can ever be possible. Now, there may be times, I know I've experienced certain times, where I've looked at the circumstances and said, well, I don't understand this at all. But I know God's word is true. So I don't bother with the things I don't know. I stick with the things I do know. And that's working like a charm for me. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God. We'll talk about the armor of God next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the equipping that your word brings to us to be able to stand against all of the devil's attacks. Thank you, Father, that we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Thank you that we've been joined together with you and nothing in heaven, hell, or earth can ever change that. 
You said, Lord, that you'd never leave us nor forsake us. We thank you that it's impossible for us to be left alone. We thank you, Father, that it's impossible for any work of the devil to be sufficient to take us out of your hand or out of your care. We thank you that it's impossible for any attack of the devil to be greater than the provision and the victory that Jesus has already obtained for us. There's no sickness that can take us away from the reality of divine health. There's no financial attack that can take us away from the reality of Jesus' provision. There's no circumstance, no thought, no depression, no anxiety that can change the truth, the reality that we have the peace of God. Thank you, Lord, that we are strong in you and in the power of your might, your resurrection power, that power that defeated the enemy when you exercised it against him, that same power defeats the enemy when we exercise it against him now. Thank you, Father. We cannot fail. We cannot go under because we're standing on your word. And your word can never fail. We love you, Lord. Open our eyes to who we are in Christ more than ever before. So that this year, this upcoming year, 2016, is our best and finest year spiritually. Because we know that as we put you first and growing in the knowledge of your word, that'll change the circumstances in our lives. Thank you, Father, for increasing us more and more, us and our children, so that we experience days of heaven on earth, not just for our own comfort, but so that we can be an example to the world and bring in the precious fruit of the earth. We love you, Lord. We thank you for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' precious name, everybody that agrees with that, say amen. 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 Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us. Don't forget our Wednesday night service. We're all back on our regular schedule. So if you can come and be with us, and we'll be glad to have you. Also, the services this evening, prayer schools at 5 and healing schools at 6. We'd be glad to have you with us. God bless you, and you're dismissed. <laughs>